0: Are Locked on Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast, it's part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me as always, my co host in crime, Rob Rang. Hate to break it to you all, but. We have another Misery Monday on tap. Haven't gotten used to having this many of them in one season, but that's what happens when your football team falls to 5-10 and in the season. The first time the Seahawks have had double-digit losses in the Pete Carroll era, losing a 25-24 stunner to the Chicago Bears at Snowy Lumen Field on Sunday. And we'll have a chance to break this matchup down more as the episode progresses and throughout the week here, but... Really, Rob, this felt like a deflating loss, as deflating of a loss as there's ever been for the Seahawks in the Pete Carroll era. And so we're going to be kind of trying to look at what the future has to hold because we now know the Seahawks are mathematically eliminated from the postseason. So we don't have to worry about going through scenarios anymore for them to slip into the playoffs. But that means it's time to start focusing on the future, even though there's two games left on the schedule. We're looking forward to doing that on today's jam-packed episode. Glad to have you listening in as always and making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. Now for your lead story here on Locked on Seahawks. The Seahawks can officially have their name etched on their 2021 tombstone. With a 25-24 to loss to the Bears, they fell to 5-10. and They've guaranteed that they're going to finish in last place in the NFC West. They're eliminated from the postseason the Bears ensured that their playoff hopes were put on ice, just like the field at Lumen
1: Field. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, I think that uh, that this was a particularly deflating loss because like so many of the other losses so far this season, Corbin, uh, it, it just felt like such a winnable game. Um, You know, this is a game that the Seahawks, at least the the, the prior versions of the Pete Carroll uh, coach teams, just had a little bit more firepower down the stretch, would have a little bit more just want to and physicality down the stretch. And it was the Chicago Bears who wound up pulling out the the big plays. Um, It did have the the greater physicality, especially in the second half. Um, And and so it was a a particularly deflating loss. You could see it just in in, in Pete Carroll's body language after the game in the the, the post-game press conference. Russell Wilson as well I mean these are two guys who who pride themselves on their optimism and and yes they they felt uh, and looked at basically as cold as that that lumen field ice as you mentioned just
0: defeated that's the word that comes to mind when you look at what Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson's body language was like after the game and you got to understand there's good reason why I mean 10 losses is unheard of for Pete Carroll he has not had 10 losses in a season Since his first year, his only season with the New York Jets in 1994, at any level, he has not lost double-digit games. This is just new foreign territory for him. He's not used to losing this many games. Russell Wilson is a winner. He had never lost double-digit games. He had never lost more than seven games in a season going into this year. So, For both of these men, it's really been a difficult, challenging season trying to weather this storm that has just continued to haunt this football team and they have not been able to finish games they've had five losses by three points or less which you know some may say well that suggests if a few more bounces would have went their way you know they could be 10 and 5 instead yes that's absolutely true but you could have made the same argument the last couple of seasons with all the close games the Seahawks managed to win and so I think now that we know the Seahawks at 5-10 and are out of the playoff, there's no way they can get into the postseason. These last two games, they truly are playing for pride and evaluation for the future. I think we've got to ask the central question here, the essential question, Rob. Is it time for the Seahawks going into the 2022 offseason to initiate a full-scale rebuild? I'm not talking retooling like they did in 2018. I'm talking – Rip it down almost to the studs. Keep a few of your star players, and let's completely rebuild. Is it time to do that now, coming off the loss that just seemed to hit different even than some of the other really bad losses the Seahawks have had this season?
1: See, I I don't think that it is. I, I certainly understand that sentiment. I mean, the Seahawks are a terrible football team right now. A- again, I, I think that, uh, that it was fairly predictable that they might lose this game against the Bears. As we talked about, you know, in our uh, kind of previewing this contest, the Bears were going to come in and hit Seattle in the mouth. And the fact that Seattle was not able to duplicate that physicality, that intensity, even at home, even with everything on the line, to me is absolutely a huge concern. That said, you just mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, Seattle had five different losses this year um, based on three points or less. They were playing against a first-place schedule. They'll be going up against a last-place schedule next year. That is going to help whoever is brought in as head coach. Uh, if that if there, is, if there is indeed going to be a change, whoever would be at quarterback, if there is gonna be a change, whoever being in a general manager, it's gonna help them look really, really good in their very first year here, just again, because they'd be going against a fourth place schedule with a very talented and I'd like to think a, a, a team that has its pride, uh, you know, been hurt a little bit this year. They likely would be able to come back next year with a little bit more ferocity to their game. Um, but at the same time, until you show me some, a head coach um, or, or somebody else who's going to be able to motivate a team that frankly has not shown much motivation, has not shown much scratch and claw the way that Pete Carroll has historically done uh, you know, with several teams over the years, then I don't know that the, the hard reset is exactly what, what this model needs.
0: See, and I disagree. And this is something that I've kind of worked up to because our listeners know that I've been on board with keeping Pete Carroll and keeping John Schneider and trying to keep Russell Wilson for the most part up to this point. I don't know how coming out of this game, and you don't want to put too much stock in one game, especially when the Seahawks already were guaranteed a losing season. You know They're a bad football team, and they showed that again yesterday. But again, this game just hit differently. And I don't know how many times after games Pete Carroll has taken the sword and, you know, I've got to do a better job or this is on me. And it's the same problems that have been haunting them all season. They were actually good on third down in the first half yesterday, but three for 10 for the game. That's not going to get it done. The Bears had the football almost 40 minutes. So, again, they lost the time of possession uh, game. You see a defense that can't get off the field, and part of that's on the offense for not being able to do their job, but the defense has to get stopped. They had their own issues with third downs. These are the same issues that have cropped up all year. The discipline issues, the time management, the clock management, those are issues that have been brought up for years, and the Seahawks have been able to overcome those problems because of their talent, well, that has not been the case this year, and there were some questionable game management things that happened yesterday as well. That, to me, starts to go back to the head coach and to his coaching staff. When you are not able to find a solution to these problems with the supposed talent that is on this roster. And again, I'm not saying that you just sell the entire farm. You're not doing a fire sale necessarily, but you can't do what you did in 2018, in my opinion, at this point. You can't say, we're going to keep Russell Wilson, Pete Carroll, John Schneider couple of our key pieces, and then we're just going to try to reload around them. I think that this offseason requires a much more detailed rebuild than that. And I think they're going to have some really tough decisions to make along the way, whether that's with Bobby Wagner or figuring out what they're going to do with Quandre Diggs, who's going to be a free agent. What do they do with the tackle positions? Brandon Shell and Dwayne Brown are both going to be free agents. They've got a lot of really pressing questions. They've got cap space to work with, but you've got a $35 million quarterback that isn't playing like a $35 million quarterback. I don't know who ends up being out after this season ends, but again, this just feels like, and we've talked end of an era quite a bit this year with debilitating losses that put Seahawks behind the eight ball. But this, again, this one just was different. This one truly felt like the end of an era And maybe it's going to be Pete Carroll. Maybe it's going to be Russell Wilson. Maybe it's going to be both of them that are out of town. I wouldn't rule anything out at this point. And you don't want to overreact to one season. Again, they've won these close games for the most part during Pete Carroll's time on the sideline. And you could point to this season just being an aberration or an anomaly. I just don't see it that way, though, at this point. I don't know how you can go back to having pretty much the same cast of characters and retooling around them with the way that this season has played out. I just... I can't see it working out. If you really want to compete for Super Bowls, I don't see this core being the group with this coaching staff at this point that's going to get the job done. And I'm not saying a full rebuild is going to get you back into Super Bowl contention next season. You probably are going to miss the playoffs again if you do that, especially if you're moving on from Russell Wilson. But it might get you to a Super Bowl quicker in the long run than trying to keep winning with a group that now five or six years in a row this core of players they haven't been able to win playoff games, and now they're not making the postseason. So we got a long offseason ahead of us. We'll see what ends up happening, but I personally believe that an all-out rebuild needs to be coming and needs to be on tap for the Seahawks team coming out of this game. It's just what has been a miserable 2021 season. We're going to be answering your questions on our Monday mailbag here in a moment. Let's talk about your new year. we got new year coming up, awesome holiday, one of my favorites. That means it's time for New Year's resolutions. If yours is about getting fit or eating healthier, make sure you include Built Bar in your plan. Built Bar is the protein bar that tastes like a candy bar, maybe even better than a candy bar. Built Bar makes it easier to stick to your resolution because it tastes good. You'll want to eat it all the time, unlike other protein bars, which can be chalky or waxy or taste like a chemical spill. You want to eat healthy, but it just gets so boring. By week three, you might be thinking, this just is not worth it. Where's the chocolate? Well, milk Bars take care of that. They're 100% real chocolate, 130 calories, 4 grams of sugar, 4 net carbs, and 17 grams of protein. Compare that to a candy bar, which usually has around 240 calories, 30 grams of sugar, and dozens of net carbs. Here's an idea for the new year. Go to all your secret treat stashes at home, in the pantry, and at the office, wherever. Throw out all the sugary and calorie-filled treats and replace them with Built Bars. So when you're craving a snack or treat, you can reach for something that's healthy and tastes incredible. Even if you're not a huge fan of working out, you can at least eat something that tastes good and is good for you. That way, you can enjoy a delicious Built Bar, you can almost count it as a workout. Go to built.com and use the promo code locked on and get 15% off your order. That's locked15 at built.com for 15% off. Continuing our misery Monday here on the Locked On Seahawks podcast, it's time for our weekly Monday mailbag. Let's get right to it. Tons of questions from you, the 12s. Rob, our first question coming from Hawk Sponge Do you think fans influence decisions made by the Seahawks organization? like the decision to fire Brian Schottenheimer, and if so, how much? I actually think this is an interesting question because I do wonder how much John Schneider, Pete Carroll, the players, we know some of the players are very active on social media. How much do the fans... Play into their
1: decisions. I don't think that the fans play much into the uh, the actual football personnel decisions in terms of who the team trades or who the team drafts. Uh, I think the Seahawks as an organization do a great job of incorporating the fans into the you know the fan experience at the games itself, Corbin. But again, I think that that Pete Carroll and the success that he had prior to joining with the Seahawks with John Schneider and the success that, that he had, uh, especially with the Green Bay Packers, uh, I think that their their success speaks for itself, frankly. And, that the the Seahawks are one of those clubs that is probably less willing to allow the noise to bother them those the noise meaning the fans the noise meaning the media I mean just think about what it turns out like every time when it comes to draft day there's this expectation of who the Seahawks are going to select and they wind up going in a completely different direction to me that suggests that uh maybe they should be listening to the fans more but I don't think that they are
0: yeah I agree with you I really don't think that they care at all what fans are saying on social media and that doesn't mean they don't have burner accounts because at this point I am convinced that John Schneider and Pete Carroll probably do have burner accounts out there to see what's floating around on social media but I don't think that it drives their decision making and and like you said if it did I think you would have seen a lot of different draft picks the last couple of years because they always seem to go out in left field making especially their early picks and fans are always flabbergasted by that. So if they were really listening to what the fans wanted and or using that to make their decisions, that they'd have a lot different uh, choices that they would be making in free agency, the draft, you name it. Not all of them are shunned by the fan base, but I would say especially with the draft, the fans are typically not too happy with the moves, at least in the last four or five years. Next question here from King Jay. What would the Seahawks get? If they traded Bobby Wagner this offseason, and and Rob, you and I were going to touch on this in our third quarter segment, potentially, because it has been a rough couple weeks, even though Bobby Wagner did just break the Seahawks franchise record for tackles. He's overall had a good season. He's going to be 32 in the offseason, though. And again, I mentioned this might be time to consider rebuilding. What can you get for a soon to be 32 year old linebacker, even one that's going to be Canton bound down the road?
1: Bag of footballs, that's the thing is you're not going to get much for him. You know, you're going to get a day three pick at best, uh, considering the fact you are talking about a 32-year-old linebacker who has not played very well down the stretch of either this year or last year, frankly, um, you know, who is doing an awful lot of money. Now, if Seattle was willing to accept a whole bunch of that money, uh, you know, the the, the salary cap uh, restrictions that would come with it, then, then sure, then then you might be able to get maybe a day two, a second or third round selection. But as you said, Corbin, and I agree with you, Bobby Wagner is a future Hall of Fame player. I think one of the best things about him is that he has played his entire career in, in Seattle. To trade away a player of, of that caliber, uh, a man of that caliber on and off the field, for for you know anything less than an early round draft pick, I think is the exact opposite of the message that you want to send. Bobby Wagner has done everything that the Seahawks have ever asked him to do. I just think he's an aging player like a lot of the other players on Seattle's roster. I think that he is overpaid at this point, but I don't think that there is any kind of quick switch uh to be made with, with Bobby Wagner, unfortunately, just because the salary is so bloated.
0: I still think that he is a good enough player that if unless you're getting a second or early third round pick minimum in exchange for him that it's tough to justify moving him the downside though is that contract because he's not played to that level he's not making the impact game-changing plays the interceptions the sacks things like that that he did make earlier in his career yes he's still a really good tackler though he has missed quite a few tackles the last two weeks Uh, Uncharacteristically, and part of it is he's just—he's not taking the best angles, and his athleticism is continuing to decline. So the Seahawks are between a rock and a hard place here because you don't want to give up a legend like that without making sure you get adequate compensation. But from the or to the defense of other teams, you know, giving up a third or fourth round pick seems like adequate compensation for a player that is declining, is aging, and didn't finish this season well after a strong start. To the campaign. And so, again, between a rock and a hard place, I don't know if they try to move him this offseason, but if they do, you're probably not going to be getting the value back that you would hope for for a guy that's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, one of the best linebackers of his era. But he's towards the end of his career now at this point. You're going to have a hard time getting the right compensation back for him next question from Africa Shabazz what exactly is Shane Waldron good at? I'm really getting office space vibes from this what is it that you do here Shane Waldron we don't know how to use Eskridge Russ's running ability has been thrown in the trash we don't call him to run anymore we struggle getting DK the ball the run game exploded with Solari and Shoddy, and now it's become extremely bad what is it that Shane Waldron can do And as goofy as this question is, and I don't completely agree with everything in it, you know, you can understand why fans are frustrated, Rob.
1: Oh, I certainly can. I mean, that's the thing. I think you can make an, a similar type of question uh, you know for Daryl Bevel, for Brian Schottenheimer for for any of Seattle's offensive play callers here over the last couple of years because it does feel like like Seattle's offense has been you know pretty stagnant, pretty predictable for a long time now. I would caution though that if the quarterback was making better plays, um, if he was playing any type of consistency, then we'd be. I think we'd be having a different conversation right now. So to me, this all kind of goes back to the conversation we had in the in the first segment, Corbin, about you know perhaps doing a complete roster reset here um, in terms of both players and uh, you know coaches and scouts, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I just it's it's hard to evaluate a first year offensive coordinator when you've had the inconsistencies that you've had at the quarterback and running back positions in particular. Um, But at the same time, I have not seen a great deal of improvements from Shane Waldron uh, at this point. So I think it's a very fair question and something that Seattle absolutely needs to be evaluating after this season if indeed Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson are brought back.
0: I talked about this a few weeks ago. I mean, if Pete Carroll's gone, there's no way that Shane Waldron is coming back. And even if Pete Carroll does return for 2022, I think that there is a pretty good chance that this could be a one-year run for Shane Waldron. He could be one and done. And I don't know necessarily that that's fair because he has been dealt with some rough circumstances. He had three games without Russell Wilson. Then Wilson played several games where he has now admitted he was not 100%. And maybe he still isn't 100%. Air mailing throws. Like you said, the last few games, there have been some big plays left in the field because Russell Wilson hasn't executed the way that we are accustomed to seeing Russell Wilson execute. And you can't really blame the offensive coordinator for that. But there also have been issues on third down with some of the play calling. Again, not establishing the run late in the game. Yesterday, it felt like Rashad Penny should have got the ball four or five more times and it didn't happen. There's been some questions about tempo, mixing it up, the flow of things, having diversity in the run game. I mean, I can keep going. There certainly have been some issues there that have been evident from a first-time play caller. But you got to wonder if it's fair or not, given the circumstances, whether he – should be one and done or not. Uh, but when the offense is struggling the way that it has and, and, and playing four quarters of solid football, again, yesterday, second half, just seven points. When you're continuously dealing with that, a lot of times the buck stops at the offensive coordinator, who's the easiest person to make a scapegoat. Last question here coming from Tom Rollman. Pete mentioned other NFC West teams having star-level talent on Mike Salk's radio show this morning. Do you see the Seahawks looking to bring in more star-free agents in the offseason? Rob, what do you think?
1: Well, as you mentioned earlier, Corbin, the Seahawks are going to have a little bit of salary cap flexibility, at least perhaps. I mean, obviously, a lot of that money could go to re-sign some of their own players, like the aforementioned Quandre Diggs. But, uh, yeah, I think that it's critical. If if Seattle stays basically in-house, they they keep the coach, they keep the general manager, they keep the quarterback, uh, then I think that you have to add some talent to this team. And fortunately, this looks like it could be a year where there's a banner year uh, for for veterans for out there. This is not an elite draft class coming up Corbin, but it's much better than, than some out there are are projecting. Just because it doesn't have elite quarterbacks does not mean it's not a good class. It does have the cornerbacks and the running backs that might be able to add a little bit more juice to a Seahawks roster that frankly has struggled with consistency in those two positions in particular.
0: I don't know that the Seahawks are going to be overly aggressive looking out to get stars this offseason. Now, Pete Carroll's comments this morning might suggest that, but, I mean, we don't know. I would hedge bets that Pete is going to be back next year, but I don't think that it's guaranteed by any means. We don't know what's going to happen with John Schneider. We don't know what's going to happen with Russell Wilson at this point. There are so many question marks with the players that are already on their roster, what direction they're going to be going after missing the playoffs and having double-digit losses. I can tell you one thing. This is going to be a really hard place to sell in free agency unless you're throwing the checkbook at players because you're coming off the season with 10 losses minimum. I mean, If they lose another game or two, we're talking 11 or 12 losses, a top 10 draft pick that isn't even theirs. It's going to be really hard, even with the track record they have of consistently being a playoff team. It's going to be hard to sell to star players. Hey, we're just one or two players away from – getting right back into the postseason and being a Super Bowl threat. I don't think that's the reality, and I think most players around the league probably don't view that as the reality, especially with the uncertainty with your quarterback and your head coach and some of the other key players on your roster. So they might want to go out and be more aggressive than they've been in the past, but I don't know if they're going to be able to. There's just so many things that have to unfold before free agency gets here to really know what their strategy is going to look like once we get to March we got to break down this loss yesterday at snowy Lumen Field. The Seahawks falling 25-24. to 24. As much as we regret it, we have to talk about another defeat. That's just been the way that this season has gone. BetOnline has you covered this holiday season with more props, odds, and lines than ever before as football continues its march through the college bowl season and the pro football playoffs. Bet Online remains your number one spot for all the sports action this season. Head to their website, Or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code LOCKEDON to receive your bonus. From football, basketball, NHL, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers available for the 2021 season. BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your favorite sports, so don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing new offers available. BetOnline, where the game starts. The Seahawks suffering their 10th defeat of the season at the hands of the Bears. And a game that, you know, it's crazy saying this because there have been some stunning losses already this year. But I don't know that there has been one that has been as stunning as the loss to the Bears yesterday. They had their third-string quarterback, Nick Foles. Yes, he's won a Super Bowl, but still a third-string quarterback. They're without their top receiver, Allen Robinson. They're down to their third-string left tackle, They're missing a couple of other key players on offense. On defense, no Khalil Mack, no Akeem Hicks. Jalen Johnson's out. This was a team at 4-10 and coming in. The Bears had nothing to play for except pride. And yet, they were the ones that looked like they still had some playoff life and some some playoff aspirations. The Seahawks had a 10-point lead, Rob, at two different points in the second half. And yet, like they've done several other times this year, they couldn't hold on to the lead and then they couldn't finish the game
1: yeah that's that's what the what was most disappointing about that loss is uh you know as we talked about uh, you know chicago was going to come in they were going to be physical that's what they do um, you know, the, with those two linebackers that they have, uh, uh, of course, Raquan Smith, but also Alec Ogletree, um, very, very physical linebackers. Uh, David Montgomery was basically worth the price of admission, in, in my opinion. I mean, he was the best player on the field, I thought, um, with all due respect to what Seattle brought on the on the offensive side of the ball with Rashad Penny. And that's where I would kind of lead off here, I guess, in terms of our, our, our overall uh, takeaways from this game. Sure, you can focus in on the sky is falling and all that. Kind of stuff. But, you know, give a little bit of credit to Rashad Penny and the resiliency that he's shown, uh, the physicality of Seattle's offensive line, some of the downfield blocks. You I mean, very first play, basically, uh, you know, where you see Dwayne Brown, um, you know, at his age is basically being asked to, uh, you know, kind of an old counter tray kind of a play where he, you know, he drops back and, he, and he's, um, you know, leading the charge 10, 15 yards down the field with Rashad Penny right behind him. I mean, just really some spectacular individual efforts for from Seattle's offensive side of the football. One of the biggest knock, uh, knocks on Seattle's offense. I've been saying it all, all season long, it feels like, with Russell Wilson, and that would be one of the arguments, I would say, uh, going back to our first segment, uh, of why Seattle shouldn't be necessarily overreacting to this type of, of of losses is while you can say that Seattle uh, continues to have some of the things that have plagued Pete Carroll for a long time the lack of discipline, some of the focus mistakes, and whatever. But throughout Russell Wilson's career, Corbin, he has been the best quarterback on the field in virtually every single game that Seattle's played. And yet that was not the case again yesterday, where a third string quarterback, yes, a former Super Bowl MVP at quarterback, but still a third string quarterback basically out through Russell Wilson when the game was on the line.
0: Yeah, that's the biggest downside on offense for this game is just another very uneven performance from your $35 million a year quarterback. And I I thought Russell Wilson was fantastic for most of the first half. He had a 41-yard touchdown pass to DK Metcalf in the snow flurries, in the wind, perfectly hit him in stride. The throw that he couldn't make indoors in Los Angeles on Tuesday. That looked like a vintage Russell Wilson deep ball. He made a couple other really nice third-down completions to Gerald Everett, who, by the way, Everett had his best game as a Seahawk yesterday. I thought he played really well, moved the chains a couple times at a 24-yard touchdown reception. So you saw a lot of positives on offense. They won with explosives. They won with methodical drives. They won with a two-minute drill. At the end of the first half, though, I would have liked to see them have 30 more seconds on the clock if Pete Carroll would have called timeout once they stopped the Bears. They chose to keep their second timeout and take 30 seconds off the clock. I would have liked to see how it would have played out if they would have done the other strategy. But nonetheless, I thought Wilson played really well in the first half. And then second half, we saw what we've seen way too much this year, errant throws. On third downs, they ended up finishing 3-for-10 after going 3-for-6 in the first half. They went 0-for-4 on third downs in the second half. He took that awful sack from Robert Quinn that Dwayne Brown did a fantastic job blocking Quinn. He got him washed like 12 yards downfield, but Wilson tried to be Houdini and roll his way out of there and ends up losing 13 yards. Then Jason Myers misses the field goal on the next play. And 39 yards in, in that weather was not a chip shot by any means. So number three's just got to play better. We've been saying this for weeks, week after week. He's just not been able to consistently play well for four quarters, and that continued yesterday. The plus side, they did have the run game going, and I'm so happy for Rashad Penny because he's just been through so much. Everybody calling him a bust and missing almost 30 games due to injury his first four seasons. And now in the last four games, Rob, almost 350 rushing yards for Rashad Penny. He's averaging around 6.5 yards per carry. He has five runs of 25 yards or more just in the last four games. He's done that on 70-something carries this year. The only player in the NFL that has more 25-plus yard rushes is Jonathan Taylor, an MVP candidate. No, by the way, Taylor's done it on 200-plus more carries. That's how explosive Rashad Penny is, and we're seeing him run with power. I had him down for eight broken or forced missed tackles yesterday on his 16 carries. So you are seeing the player the Seahawks were so enthralled by to the point that they drafted him in the first round out of San Diego State. That's the kind of player he's looking like these last four games. And as Pete Carroll mentioned after the game, he's really played his way back into their plans. We'll see if that actually happens during free agency. But I think at this point, You've got to be bringing him back with the way he's played. He's been the one consistent bright spot along with the offensive line blocking for him over the last four games that really kept the Seahawks in these games when unfortunately their passing game just wasn't living up to expectations.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the, the five plays of, of 20 yards or more. Again, it's a 230, 235 pound running back. You know, and just how quickly he gets to and through the hole, it, it's very unusual. You see guys of that size that have that type of explosiveness. And so, uh, again, it, it, his durability issues are a concern. It, it's why he is not going to get, I wouldn't think, very much attention on the free agent market. He might be one of those players the Seattle is able to get. To come back on the cheap and yet still be able to have kind of a you know an explosive one year kind of prove it type of a, of a deal and so to me that would be the best case scenario for him because you know that's going to be one of the things that we'll be breaking down a little bit i'm sure off all off season corbin is just the fact that that basically all of the guys that seattle re-signed back again wound up not playing nearly as well once they got their money. And and so that, to me, is going to be one of the the real factors that you have to go into. But let's just quickly switch over to the defensive side of the ball, though, and and some takeaways. And you know, kind of, to me, very similar to Rashad Penny uh, on the offensive side of the ball, the way that Carlos Dunlap has taken over a couple of games for the Seahawks here recently, um, I think deserves some kudos here as well. Um, Now, he is not demonstrating great speed, but his power, I mean, just... I mean, whether it be off the left side, the right side, uh, you know, almost forcing a fumble that really could have turned this game for Seattle. Uh, the fact that Dunlap was as consistently disruptive as he was to me is the obvious bright spot on the defensive side of the ball for Seattle.
0: Yeah, and I actually don't know that he was the most disruptive pass rusher for the Seahawks because Rasheen Green had five quarterback hits and two sacks in this game. And you and I both know how I feel about pro football focus, but I had to chuckle a little bit looking at their grades this morning. Rasheem Green had like the third lowest grade in their defense, and I'm like, what game were you watching? It felt like every play that Nick Foles was dropping back, Rasheem Green was in the pocket, and he was coming after him and just extremely disruptive. you we are talking about a player that feeds off of Carlos Dunlap's energy. Last year, Jaron Reed did that, but I, you could see Rasheem Green at the end of the year played a lot better, We're seeing the same thing happen this time around as well with Carlos Dunlap drawing attention and getting in the backfield and wreaking havoc. We're seeing Rasheem Green do the same thing, and it's a lot like Rashad Penny. This is a player that hasn't missed near as many games, but he's had some injuries. He hasn't been consistent when he has been on the field, but he's only 24 years old. This is still a player that could be a starter caliber defensive end that has the versatility to play defensive tackle, and we have seen more spurts of that this year. I think this has easily been his best season overall from a production standpoint, from a consistency standpoint. Still a lot of room to grow, but he's another player that I think, even if you're rebuilding, which I've argued the Seahawks should be doing, I think you can make a case that Rashad Penny and Rasheem Green, being 24 and 26 respectively, should be a part of that rebuilding plan. This doesn't mean you get rid of every player you have, but you got to figure out which young guys you want to keep hang on to and keep as part of your rebuild efforts. I think those two guys should be part of that, not with big money contracts, maybe one-year prove-it deals because their injuries and inconsistency, but guys that could still be starters for you in 2022 and beyond.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with you. If you're able to retain Rasheem Green, uh, again, he's kind of a homegrown player. Um, you know, I mean, you, you you drafted him when he was only 20 years old. You, you've you kind of allowed him to develop here slowly. I think that he give does give you some positional versatility, um, you know, as far as playing defensive end, playing defensive tackle as well. Um, this is a pretty good edge class in terms of the 2022 NFL draft. It's not a very good defensive tackle class. And the fact that Green can slide inside and be very effective in that way, um, I think that he might uh, attract some interest on, on the free Agent market, so it's going to be interesting to see what kind of decision Seattle makes on that side. Uh, I'm going to switch back to the secondary a little bit, because we, we talked about Bobby Wagner and the fact that he struggled a little bit. Jordan Brooks made some really splashy plays, uh, you know, and, and so that was encouraging. I, I thought that the secondary w- was very much a mixed match of uh, a mixed mash, excuse me, um, uh, of, of good play. I saw some really nice plays by by Sidney Jones, for example. Quandre Diggs continues to play at a high level. Level on Reed and the fact that, that he got picked on in coverage a little bit. I thought some I thought some of the penalties called on him were a little bit ticky-tack. To me, what was the most concerning Corbin, I mentioned this before with how David Montgomery that was absolute superstar at the running back for the Bears, but just the number of missed tackles, the number of uh struggling to get off of blocks from a pretty diminutive size of Chicago wide receivers. Darnell Mooney, all 180 pounds of him running through three or four Seattle defensive backs tackles uh down the stretch in that game. For or what wound up becoming the game-winning drive by the Bears, to me, that was a real concern in this football game.
0: Yeah, the tackling was poor. And unfortunately, you don't want to pick on John Reed because he's like the 18th corner on Seattle's depth chart. And that's where we're at at this point because of COVID and injuries. They've just been completely ravaged at that position not having D.J. Reed, bless Austin, they already lost Trey Brown. All the movement they had at that position at the early part of the season, moving on from Trey Flowers, they've they've gone through so many bodies there, and he's made a few plays in these last two games. But he also got put in a really bad spot where he had to defend Jimmy Graham at the end of the game. That was a mismatch. The Bears immediately took advantage of it. There were a few missed tackles that he left in the field. Nick Foles was picking on him quite a bit in this game. So he had a rough one, and it feels like I I can't – I hate saying this because I like how Ugo Amadi plays. I like the effort that he brings to the field. But this, it just feels like the corner, the slot corner position. That is an area the Seahawks are going to have to find a better alternative next season because he's just had too many games where he's had issues with missed tackles or he's had issues with missing assignments Or reading screens, he's been really poor in that area of his game, letting ball carriers get away. There are just too many plays that he is leaving on the field at a position that in today's NFL is extremely important. And so I'm with you. I thought the secondary was a true mixed bag. I thought Sidney Jones overall played another really solid game. Quandre Diggs did. Ryan Neal was fine, average game. But your other cornerback spots with John Reed and and, uh, Ugo Amati, He saw Nick Foles take advantage of those two smaller corners. They were able to get some big chunk plays, a number of 15, 16-yard completions, also working against linebacker Bobby Wagner to get a number of those as well. The Bears found those weak spots. The Seahawks just did not execute. Everybody's going to say this is Ken Norton Jr.'s fault, but there was one play in particular with Bobby Wagner. Cole Komet catches the ball six yards short of the first down on third down, and Bobby Wagner is in a perfect spot to make the stop but he looks like he's in quicksand and Komet just blows by him on the sideline and easily gets the first down. That's a play that's indicative of where the Seahawks defense was at yesterday and Wagner's play in general, as good as he still is, those are plays he used to make that now he's not making. You can't blame Ken Norton Jr. for that. He schemed it up properly, had a player in the right spot to make a play. Wagner just didn't get it done. So too many plays left in the field for the defense the offense wasn't able to pick up the slack in the second half. What's the end result? You end up losing by one point to the Chicago Bears, and the Seahawks are now 5-10, and officially eliminated from the postseason, and a long, dark offseason slowly approaches. As always, we greatly appreciate you making Locked on Seahawks your first listen every day. Now make your second listen, Locked on Bets, your daily one-stop shop for all your gambling needs. Locked on bets is hosted by your boy Q with expert analysis and insight from Lee Sterling. You can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Make sure to check out Locked on Seahawks on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and the all new Odyssey app. That's A U D A C Y. We return tomorrow, gearing up for Week 17, which is not the final week of the season. It's weird, having 17 game schedule, especially when the Seahawks are already out of the playoff hunt. We're going to be breaking down their upcoming opponent, a little bit of what's new with the Detroit Lions, and Tell the Truth Tuesday we will be dishing out some more takes from Seattle's loss to the Bears on Sunday. Thanks for listening in. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. The Hawks.